Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, to be called your children, to be adopted sons and daughters of yours by grace, all through the wonderful, perfectly effective merits of your Son. We just stand in awe of you and your mercy toward us. We ask that you never let us lose sight of your great mercy and love for us, which you proved once for all at the cross. Father, most of all, we thank you for giving up your Son to become a sacrifice in our place, to be judged for the sins of the whole world, so that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him in their heart, will be saved. And we have the gift of eternal life based on your grace and mercy. Father, please bless this message. Have your Holy Spirit guide us and teach us. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 15. So turn in your Bibles again to John 10, verse 1. And we're going we're gonna to review and emphasize a few points, a few key points from Sunday morning that came out. And uh, started with this passage in John 10, which Pastor had read to himself and uh, coincided with last Thursday's lesson, too. John 10, 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Think about that. I was just thinking about that. He calls each of his sheep by name and leads them out. Now, it's one thing if you have 20 sheep, but if you have 2 million sheep, 2 billion sheep, and he knows every single name. Just something to think about. Verse 4, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So this came out on Sunday uh, for us to know that the apostles did not understand many things that the Lord was saying to them should give us great hope that God's still willing and even excited to use us in his plan. If Jesus did this for the apostles, he'll do it for us. It's all by grace anyway. And what came out on Sunday, too, is that it's a funny thing just knowing when you're not alone in your struggles, how that can help your spirit, how that can lift your spirit. Um, maybe God designed it that way. Uh, maybe it's another way to show that we're to function as a body together, uh, be dependent on one another even. And maybe it's even a way to promote the unity that the members of the Trinity have with one another. But either way, it's a very real thing 
that we get encouraged by one another's um, similar struggles. So on the board, just read this verse with me, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that phrase, but such as is common to man, that is comforting to me. That no matter what I'm going through, it could be the most painful, it could be the most unique, something I think is the most unique, but probably thousands of believers have gone through the exact same thing you're going through right now at some point. So it's just very encouraging. Why that makes a difference in our souls so much, I don't know. But can we all agree it takes the pressure off in a way? Or gives you hope that you can get through it because these thousands of others have gotten through it. They've come out the other side even. All to the glory of God in the end. But this is a very real thing that we can be encouraged just knowing that others are going through or have gone through the same thing. And the apostles is our great example. They didn't even understand the Lord and they were with him. So why should we expect more of ourselves? Maybe that's wrong to do. Turn also to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. So these things, knowing, knowing what others are going through and that others have gone through what we're going through, they can give us a lot of courage and faith to press on. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Notice that phrase. In the second part of verse 6, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. If they suffer through this, I can suffer through this. And it gives us patient endurance. And in verse 7, our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. And most comforting should be that we know Jesus understands whatever it is we're going through. He understands everything that anyone has ever gone through in life. So says Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in every area, yet without sin. But he was tempted or tested in every area. So even if you can't find someone else in your neighborhood, so to speak, going through the same thing you are. Jesus Christ understands exactly what our battles are. He empathizes. He can empathize because he became human and then became tested in every way, really, ultimately, for our sakes. So that should be really encouraging. He understands our weakness, 
our lack of understanding at times, like the apostles, he understands. And so the Bible, we also saw on Sunday, commands us to come together as brothers and sisters for a variety of reasons. One, one is encouragement and comforting one another, uh, encouragement. But we who believe come together in unity to worship at the Lord's feet, listening to his every word. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but that's what we who believe do. And as we saw on Sunday, that's who Jesus really calls his brothers and sisters, his real brothers and sisters. Uh, turn again to Mark 3, verse 31. So it's people that come together with this heart, this desire, if you will, to get to know the Lord better, to listen to his word. That's who Jesus calls his real brothers and sisters. So just a reminder of that in Mark 3.31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we saw on Sunday on the board, those who were sitting around him, Jesus considered his true disciples, his brothers, sisters, and mother. We ought to embrace this scene as our own, for if we were somehow transported back to that moment in time, he'd have looked into our eyes and said the same thing. Behold, my brothers, my mother, those who are listening to me. Right? And at the same time that he would do that for us, including us into his family. At the same time, he would know and understand our weakness and know that we're not understanding everything he's saying. Those two things exist at the same time. You are my brothers and sisters. You're listening to my word. But I know you don't get it all right now, and that's okay. How cool is that? That's the understanding Savior and Lord we have. And being one with the Father, Jesus was good with that. He was good with us not knowing everything, understanding everything. He just wanted the hearts of the people, just like he just wants our hearts, despite our inabilities. So on the board, his disciples have his peace. When we don't understand something in the word, we shouldn't fret. So long as we can look in the mirror at our heart and know we are seeking him honestly, despite our weakness and stupidity at times, we can rest in him. So at the same time that we're sitting before him, right, we're greatly encouraged. He says, you are my brothers and sisters, right? Listening to my word. And at the same time, he knows we don't understand everything. But at the same time, he wants us to keep his peace. Even though we don't understand everything. See the picture? It's like, does a child lose faith in his father or mother because he doesn't get what they're saying to him? Of course not. Right? In fact, the child trusts that his father and mother love him anyway, even though he doesn't understand what they're saying. So how much more is that true with God? So it's okay to not understand everything. And the apostles are a prime example. 
Again on the board, his disciples have his peace. When we don't understand something in the word, we shouldn't fret. So long as we can look in the mirror at our heart and know we are seeking him honestly, despite our weakness and stupidity at times, we can rest in him. We should never lose his peace, no, no matter what is going on. His peace should transcend everything in our lives, what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our souls. His peace should transcend it because he loves us no matter what, right? So why would we let anything, including our failures, take away the peace of his unconditional love? And the one that follows the Lord can know he's saved and know he's a child of God by grace through faith. If you're saved, the Bible says you've already been plucked from the fire. You now belong to him. And he decided to accept you and love you despite your weakness and sin. Isn't that true? Didn't he do that on the day of your salvation? Loved you right where you were at, in as ugly a spot as that might have been. So, you now belong to him if you've accepted him in your heart as Lord and Savior. And he accepted you in the state of weakness and sin. Not because of your accomplishments or whatever, because you had a repentant heart. Right? It's awesome. So don't forget as a believer that you are an adopted son of God now, adopted by your dad in heaven, by grace through faith in his uniquely born son. But now you're adopted and it's by your dad in heaven. Let's be reminded of that. Turn in your Bibles to Romans eight fourteen, And we're going to read a couple passages that you may be familiar with. But don't be too familiar. You might know this passage, but don't be too familiar with this. Read it with me as though it's the first time. And I want you to notice the connection between adoption and being able to call dad, uh, call God our dad. On the board, before we read that passage, his disciples have his peace. When someone is officially and legally adopted into a family, well, relationships with those in that family change. You are no longer an outsider or a temporary visitor into someone's home. You now belong to that family. Even the way you address others changes. And now we are allowed to address God totally differently because our relationship has changed with Him as believers. All by His grace, of course. But that's the reality for those who have turned to Christ with their heart. So look at Romans 8.14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this word Abba it comes from the Aramaic, and it's, a, it's an intimate term that we can best translate today as daddy. That's the best translation, the closest translation to what Abba means or meant back then, daddy. It, it refers to 
when a young, trusting child would call his father? Or what a young, trusting child would call his father? So think about, it's one thing to be, you're, you know, those, those of you here right now tonight, you're all adults. And you would call your father your father. But your attitude, your terminology and your attitude were different when you called your father or your mother, whatever example you want to use, when you were five years old, right? Arguably totally different. The type of trust, the type of intimacy that you cast on them by calling them daddy or mommy or whatever. So this is what Abba Father really refers to. And we might you know, now say we can call God our dad. Why? Because of adoption and the reality of that. He's no longer just God. He's no longer just creator. We're allowed to call him dad. And we have that right now. Not because of ourselves, but we have that right because we're now righteous in Christ. So here it is again in verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And it goes on to say, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Turn to Galatians 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, 4. So again, notice the connection between adoption and what we now can call God. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Dad, if you will. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So once we've been changed at the moment of faith in Christ, our relationship with God truly changed. It, it was changed. It is now a real family relationship, and we have this privilege of calling God Dad, which is part of what, again, the Lord showed me at my little retreat this past weekend that he wants us to be more personal with him and make it our own because, you know what, he's already personal with us. We're the ones that get in the way and, for whatever reason, stop being personal with him, whether we condemn ourselves, whether we're too religious or formal in our prayer. Who knows? But just look at the message. Now that you're adopted, it, everything's changed, and you literally can call him dad like a little child would. And by the way, isn't that a good sign? the faith of a child. So now we even call him something different to go along with this newfound faith and the real relationship change. So despite our weakness, this is the new family status of the one who's trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior. And God adopted us 
knowing full well our frailties and lack of understanding. He saw our hearts toward his son, and so he adopted us by grace. He didn't go by not only the mistakes we've made, the mistakes he he knows we're going to make even after salvation. He didn't go by any of that. Just because you don't think you're smart enough or you think you can't um, get certain things that you think other people do get, and by the way, you'll be surprised that other people don't get them too, even though you think they're smart or they they talk a good game. Um, None of that hinders God's love for you, you know, or his intimacy and his attitude toward you. And that's what he wants us to keep. He wants us, again, keep that peace no matter what. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want our perfection. And now, of course, nothing can separate us from God's love. Thank God. On the board in Romans 8, 38 and 39, in the message, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, Absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. So if this is true, what's our problem? This came up on Sunday also. Why do we still sin against against God if this is all true? And why do we lack understanding and even get selfish at times? Why do we condemn ourselves when we lack understanding? as though we should now be perfect and get it all. We're still stuck in these fleshly bodies, and we're stuck in this devil's world, and Jesus understands that. That's why he's so patient with us, as he was with the apostles. Once again, we should be greatly encouraged. And as came up on Sunday on the board, regarding the battle in the flesh, Our flesh is infinitely more attracted to the things of this world than it is to the things from above. That's just how it is. Your flesh is always going to have that tendency and that draw to the things in the world that it can see, touch, smell, um, things that are anti-God because your flesh is just anti-God. It's selfish. So that is a battle we're always going to have to deal with in this world. And again, the Lord understands that. And until the day the Lord comes and gets us and rescues us from these bodies of death, as Paul called them in Romans 7, until that day, we're going to be battling with sin getting in the way. While Scripture says one thing to us, our flesh wants to challenge it, almost always. The flesh wants to challenge it, almost like a kid who wants to challenge everything you say. You could say the sky's blue and they're going to say, no, nah, I think it's a little green today. You know, you know what I mean? That's your flesh. That annoying little, I'm not going to admit I don't know anything and I'm never going to admit you know everything to God. That's our flesh. So we're stuck in these bodies of death. Thank God the Lord understands it. And that's why we have commands like we do in Colossians 3.1. So go again to Colossians 3.1. The Lord is trying to help us. He's infinitely patient with us. And he's trying to help us look at things the right way, have the right perspective, even though we're stuck in these bodies. Colossians 3.1. 
Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, we would not be told to keep our eyes on the things above if this wasn't a problem, right? Again, our flesh is so infinitely more attracted to the things of this world that commands like this are needed for us, reminders like this are needed. Our eyes get stuck on the things below. You know, sometimes we can't unglue our eyes. It's like when you get in front of the television for too long and you start getting into like zombie land, you know what I mean? And your eyes just kind of go in and out almost. You, you, you're stuck to that TV screen. And it can be a challenge to just pull away. Well, that's kind of how it is in the whole world for us in this flesh. So God knows it. As believers, we're saddled with many diversions in the devil's world that are trying to distract us from keeping our eyes on the things above, where our life is truly hidden with Christ. So what came out on Sunday is, first and foremost, we have to recognize these things in the world as diversions. So don't fall for them, in other words. So on the board, we saw the definition of a diversion from Wikipedia. A military deception designed to draw enemy strength away from a primary target. Just think about it for a minute. A military deception designed to draw enemy strength away from a primary target. So Satan wants to draw your attention and your strength away from leaning on Christ. And so what does he do, like you see in the war movies? He'll go and sneak around the back and throw a grenade on the other side. So what do you do? You go look. And you maybe even run to it and say, what's going on over here? Right? And he just pulled you away with a diversion. <coughs> he pulled you away from your position of strength, maybe, even in Christ, by a diversion, a tactic to get your attention somewhere else, that maybe even thinking something is very important to address, like a grenade over there going off, right? So we have to be on guard for his tactics, and diversion is a huge one. What does Satan use? He uses counterfeits. Counterfeits. That grenade that he throws over there is some counterfeit of happiness to get you to wander away, to get your flesh tempted, to wander away, to buy the lie that there's something more important over there when you'll have perfect peace if you stay right, right where you're at and you keep your eyes on the Lord. So Satan is a military genius. We can't be ignorant of his schemes. Listen, he's going to make it look real good. He's going to even help you rationalize it as being from God. He's good. So unless you keep your eyes on the things above, unless you keep coming to listen to the word of God at the feet of Jesus, so to speak, unless you do that, you're going to be pulled away by these diversions that are going to look pretty sweet at times. So here's the point that came out powerfully on Sunday, is that Satan has no real power over us. He really doesn't. He has no legitimate power over us or authority. We must give it to him by means of our own free will. 
And we do. We allow him into our, our souls and minds. Satan loves playing mind games with us. He almost like loves us getting to chase our own tail. He loves to get us condemning ourselves when we have evil thoughts. So think about it. If you're objective, right, and you know what's going on between the sin nature and the devil's world and his temptations, and you're thinking some evil thoughts or some strange thoughts that are ungodly, let's say, right? Shouldn't you be able to just step back and say, that's not from me. Where did that come from? That's not from me. Or that is from my flesh, but it's not from my new nature. So, pff, bug off Satan, so to speak. Right? Why do, we, why do we give that thought credence? Like, why do we give it power over us? Why do we say, this is my fault? Now, granted, if you stupidly, willingly do something, that's fine. Confess it, right? Come back to the Lord and go forward. But we're talking about distractions. We're talking about diversions that are going to tempt you away from God and that intimacy and that peace. So call them what they are and, and recognize that Satan doesn't really have power over you. You're the one that gives him power. You're the one that gives these thoughts credence where they're illegitimate. So we have to recognize that these evil thoughts come from the father of lies. And on the board in Ephesians 6.16, in the Amplified Version, it says, Lift up over all the covering shield of saving faith, upon which you can quench all the flaming missiles of the wicked one. So apparently, there are flaming missiles from the devil that he throws at us. So this is a real spiritual war going on. Again, go home and read Ephesians 6 if you want more of a, the big picture on the spiritual warfare going on. But this is real. These flaming missiles are real. And Satan tries to trick us with these things, divert our attention from Christ, from the peace he's given us, from our adoption with him and, and our intimate relationship with God as our dad now. He's trying to just... Twist your view, turn your head around, give you a temptation that is very tempting, a nice little diversion. So, if your thoughts are not godly, where do they come from? It's either Satan in the kingdom of darkness, or your sin nature tempting you, or it's both, right? It's not from your new nature. It's not from your new creation in Christ, that's for sure. So don't sweat it. And don't give it credibility. Don't give it power. We need to recognize these things as diversions and dismiss them immediately. Not getting condemned about it, but ignoring it as a valid thought and placing our eyes back on the Lord. It can be as simple as that because we get temptations all the time. We don't have to accept the temptations, right? It's only when you accept it that it becomes sin, right? So why not just dismiss the temptations and, you know, call out for where it's really from and tell Satan to bug off and just start praying. Talk to Dad. Be like, Dad, that was ridiculous, Dad. 
can you can you get remove that from me and you know give me something else in front of my eyes and help me look at things above but let's not let satan win the battle for our minds he can lull us to sleep and even get us condemning ourselves and that's not what god has planned for us so also we are now new creatures in christ and jesus christ is our righteousness Again, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When God sees you, don't forget that he now sees his son. Everything's changed since that time you surrendered to Christ, so to speak, in saving faith. Everything changed. When God sees you, he sees his son now. You're adopted. He says, you can call me dad now. So if that's true... How do you look at yourself? And when you have these evil thoughts, do you get condemned? And is that right to get condemned? If all that is true about you? Or is it right to dismiss it as garbage from the world and say, just be like, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not giving Satan power over me. Satan can only have what you give him on the board. Since Satan has no real power over us, we must give it to him by means of our own free will in order for him to have any real influence over us. And guess what? We do often. That's the problem. But it's to our mistake. It's the wrong perspective to give these thoughts credence, to give him influence over us. Even when we give in, even when we fall for one of Satan's diversions, God will use it for good in our lives if we love him, because we love him. God will use it for good in our lives. And that's one of the, another, another saving grace of God, if you will, and God's plan on the board regarding perspective. The good thing is that Satan's system always ends in want, and its very failure brings some people searching for the Lord and his simple truths. And it can even draw us as believers even closer to our dad in heaven, to Satan's dismay. Even the wiles and schemes of Satan that we fall for, and we might even run with for a while, and we might live in condemnation for a while before we realize it and snap out of it. Even that, God can use to draw us closer to him as our dad. And what happens? Satan lost again. He has no real power. He has no real control. Only what we give him. But even when we give it to him for a while, we win in the end because of what God can do in us and for us. So, again, we need to be greatly encouraged by these things and by the apostles who fell flat on their faces many times. We actually have to buy into the fact that sin is one of Satan's great agents and one of his diversions in our lives and he's always trying to destroy our lives and take away our peace with God and he uses sin to cause dissension and even death in our lives this is one of his tactics and we saw on Sunday sin is tantamount to death so Satan's like I'm going to get him somehow and if they're already believers 
I'm going to lead them into situations of death and things that take away their peace. And he uses sin to do it because they're intimately tied. Scripture consistently says, as we also heard on Sunday, that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. All different forms of death in our lives. And we must recognize the temptations to sin as diversions from Satan himself. One of his tactics of war. On the board we saw James 1.15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's just what sin does. Now we don't have to accept it. For example, when we, when we have lust presented to us, some type of lust, or a temptation, we don't have to let it give birth to sin. That's where we can dismiss the thought and ask you know, for Dad's help on that, or we can accept the thought and make it our own, and then that's when we sin and fail, and then that's when it leads to death in our life in some way. Even just taking away the peace of Christ that we should have all the time. Turn to Romans 5.12 for another example of the relation between death and sin. So again, on the board, James 1.15, we see that sin brings forth death. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You can see the intimate relationship there. It's repeated like two or three times there. Death and sin. And look at Romans 5.21. So that as sin reigned in death, sin reigned in death. But thankfully, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, for the believer, Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness. Okay? He exchanged our sin for his righteousness. So you're not deceived by Satan and these projections at you, these thoughts that he wants you to buy. So you're not deceived. Remember, Jesus is your righteousness right now and forevermore. So what can he do without your consent? What can Satan do to you or have any power over you? How can he have any power over you if you're now perfectly righteous in God's eyes? So we have to claim that every day, you see. We have to claim that when we face these temptations. The Lord is the reason that God adopted you as his son. Your dad now sees you as totally righteous. Go to Romans 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Notice again, he died to sin once for all. Notice death and sin again. But Christ already died that death for us. Ultimately, permanently. And look at Romans 8, verse 2. 
So it's again, it's, it's, again, it's by our own free will that we fall into this trap, this diversion, and we let it affect our peace. Romans 8.2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That's just a fact. And so we need to have the right perspective on sin and what Satan hopes to do to us through it. On the board, we saw this on Sunday also, perspective on sin and death. When we think of sin, we must immediately think of death. When we think of death, we must think of where we came from prior to our salvation. There's nothing more destitute and hopeless than spiritual death, which is separation from God. But again, now we're not separated from God any longer. We're now his sons. He's now our dad. So everything is totally different. And that's why we can't let sin have power over us anymore. We're buying the lie. So diversion, or the diversion, is choosing to fall for the temptations of the world, including Satan's counterfeits of happiness. Satan's counterfeits of happiness and peace. Throwing the grenade over there. Come look at this. Call out temptations to sin for what they really are, which are Satan's lies. Smooth, slippery tongue. Looks good, sounds good. You know, this is, we're not talking about obviously evil things here. We're talking about things that he makes look good. Thus, a good counterfeit. So on the board, Satan's tempting us to give in to sin. It's his scheme to lead us to death, to lead us to reaping what we sow, and to lead us away from the peace of Christ. This is one of his major strategies. So when you think of sin, think of death. Think of the lie. Think of the false hopes you're going to get involved in again. And the false happinesses you're going to cling to again. And the result of those dead ends and where they always end up, right? Think of that when you think of sin. Think of death. And if you want life, dismiss those thoughts and keep with the peace of Christ. So we recognize sin for what it really is, one of Satan's evil tactics in our lives to get us diverted from the goodness of God. We saw Psalm 73 where it said, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. And Satan doesn't like that. When you claim that, he hates that. And he's trying to divert you from that thing. He doesn't want you to remember that the nearness of God is to your good. That, that when you keep your eyes on the things above, you have the peace of Christ. He doesn't want you to remember that. He'll do whatever he can to distract you from that. So more perspective on sin and death. Be set free from the search for things that lead to death. The money, the relationships, the possessions, illegitimate sex. We could go on and on and on. Stop searching for these things that you think are going to satisfy, really, your lusts. You think it's happiness, but you, really it's our lusts. Stop searching for these things. They're all dead-end lies that Satan promotes. 
They all lead to situations of death. So let's again grab some context in John 10. Go back to John 10, verse 6. Be set free from the search for things that lead to death. The money, the relationships, the possessions, illegitimate sex, they all lead to situations of death. John 10, 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, notice that, Jesus said to them again, did he yell at them? Did he get frustrated with them? Did he walk away? Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As Pastor shared with you on Sunday, this is the exact same verse that popped out at him in his personal reading before he had heard Thursday's lesson with John 10.10 popped out as well. So our dad is so faithful to us. He's so faithful. And when there's a message he wants to get across to us, he does it. If we're humble and we're listening, right, he does it. If there's something he knows we need to get or hear, at that moment, he'll find a way to make it clear to us, just like he found a way to bring this verse out and emphasize John 10.10 10 right now for us. God has his ways. And he has his ways with each of us, doesn't he? Like a little different. He knows exactly how to reach us. And he makes the message loud and clear again and again when necessary because we don't understand the first time or we don't hear the first time. But if we're his children, if we're his brothers and sisters listening at his feet, he will make it known at the right time. So faithful. So right now the Spirit has been telling us to be on guard for the thief, the liar who wants to bring us down, he wants to destroy our peace, and he wants to, to distract us from following the Good Shepherd. Our, only our good shepherd can lead us to green pastures of true goodness. Once again, back to buying the lie. Only our good shepherd can lead us to true green pastures. On the board, perspective on life. It's when we pursue the Lord himself first that he can bless us with truly good things. It's so simple, isn't it? It's when we pursue the Lord himself first that he can bless us with truly good things. As simple as a child listening to his parent. When he listens, he gets blessed. When he doesn't, he gets cursed or disciplined, whatever. It's so simple. You want peace? You want true peace? Well, it's on the board. It's when we pursue the Lord himself first that he can bless us with truly good things. And his joy is for real. 
It's not a fake. It's not a substitute. It's not a temporary, like, fill-in. His joy is the, the only joy with real substance to it. And that leads to life and life more abundantly that he wants us to have. You know, we think of life more abundantly when you see that phrase. It's easy to think of material things in some way. Life more abundantly must mean I'm getting rich. I'm getting everything I want. No, it's that you can have the happiness that you think those things get you. You could be in a pile of dung on the side of the road and you won't care because you have the peace and happiness of Christ. That's life more abundantly. It's up here where he's trying to set us free. So it takes pursuing him first, though, as it says on the board, pursuing him first so he can bless us with truly good things. I mean, think about it. One of the greatest blessings will be when you get to a point where you literally don't care about what you have or what you have around you. That'll be one of the greatest blessings, when you can drop that quote-unquote need you think you have in your soul for those things. That's freedom. That's where he's trying to take us. It's like, you don't need these things in the world. Live for me, and you'll find true joy. Be like the apostles. Follow him, obey him, go out and spread the good news and find true joy. It doesn't matter if you have no food or no extra change of clothing. Someone will take care of you wherever you go, right? The whole way the Lord provides. And in that, in that thing, in living in our true purpose, the Great Commission, is contentment. That's where we find peace and find his joy. Anyway, I'm going off a little bit, but don't fall for the lies of the world is what the Spirit's saying over and over and over again. Sin leads to death. Don't fall the, for the diversions of the thief. You know, it's like trying to lead a, a child away with candy or something, right? That's what Satan's doing. He's like, don't, you don't need that shepherd. I'm a good shepherd. Come this way. I've got some great pastures over here. So he's trying to steal from us. What does Jesus call him in John 10.10? 10, the thief, right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Nice guy. Like it's ruthless, totally ruthless. But he disguises it as something good. That's the diversion. So on the board is John 10.10 in the Amplified Classic. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, I'm sorry, I'm reading the New American Standard, excuse me. The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Look at the dichotomy in this verse. Look at the total opposite ends of the spectrum. This isn't just good and bad. It's death and life. That's the magnitude of the difference between Satan and his ways and the ways of the world and how sin leads to death and then the ways of Christ, our true, truly abundant life and joy. So Jesus goes on to explain what happens to the sheep who are led astray by the false shepherds in John 10, 11. Look at John 10, 11. 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, and really a, a reference to the Pharisees who are in it for money and other things. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. That's Satan. Not concerned whatsoever. Wishing evil upon you, even though acting good toward you. So we received this warning on Sunday on the board regarding John 10, 11 through 13. Be careful who you follow, beginning with the shepherds, for not all are from God. A true shepherd's heart is forever protective over his sheep. In other words, like think about this analogy. They're his children. They're not someone else's children he's babysitting for. That's the attitude or the heart of a shepherd. They're my children. I'll die for them if the wolf comes. I'm not going to run away because I'm borrowing these kids from somebody else. I'm babysitting, and I'm not really invested. I don't have love for them. So I'll play the part and act the role, but when danger comes, I'm out of here. Jesus was passing that heart that these are my children. He's passing that heart on for his sheep to the apostles. His heart to the apostles. And Jesus knew their hearts despite their failures, despite the fact that they didn't get it half the time, but he knew their hearts. So he entrusted them with caring for his sheep. For example, we've seen this now, Peter's heart. In John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, I'm all in. There's, there's no other place to go. You're the truth. I know that. And we noted a parallel passage in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. And the Lord also... See, again, this is all part of the preparation of the apostles, okay? The Lord tested their hearts, right? Tested Peter's, hearts a couple, uh, Peter's heart a couple different times. Encouraged them. Kept teaching them despite their lack of understanding. Tested them again. Then see through this, all this process, kind of like a refining process, then we were, they were ready to go out and represent his heart. They were then ready to go care for his sheep by the time Jesus ascended. So, one more example of this was right before the Lord ascended, after the resurrection. Go to John twenty-one fifteen. John twenty-one fifteen. And I know some of you know this verse, but don't be too familiar. Try to read it for the first time, right now. Because this was like the final test of Peter before the Lord went and trusted him with the sheep. John 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, again, this is after the resurrection, okay? So they just had breakfast. This is one of only three times, by the way, that the Lord appeared to the apostles after the resurrection. 
So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. If you really love me, tend my sheep. Three times. See, Peter knew who he he was serving. But he still had to be tested and trained and even brought to his own convictions. The Lord convicted him of the fact before he took over as the little rock, right? As the leader of the apostles, when Jesus left, the Lord convicted Peter that to love Jesus is to love his people. It's basically what he said three times in John 21. To love Jesus is to love his people. When you love his sheep, you're loving the Lord. So now Peter had a beautiful thing on the board called conviction. He knew the God he served. Peter even came to his own conclusions with the help of the Lord, testing him along the way, just like this test we just read. But now he was ready. He was fully and personally prepared by the Lord. As all the apostles were, but Peter was the designated leader. The Lord could now send him out because he had his own convictions and he understood things like John 21. If you love me, you'll take care of my sheep. So there's Peter standing on God's word with his own convictions. And what came out on Sunday morning was, can a leader really lead without having his own convictions? Can a leader really lead without having his own convictions? Or is he going to be like the false shepherd that runs away when the wolf comes because he's just babysitting somebody else's sheep? He doesn't really love them because he doesn't really love the Lord. So I say no, a leader can't really lead without having his own convictions. So look at all the Lord did for Peter. All the apostles, but Peter in particular we're talking about now. Look at the different examples of how the Lord led him to his own convictions. To the point where he could come out and say, there's no other place to go but you. You know, where he could say that from his own heart, in other words. The Lord had to train him. The Lord had to bring him along, right? The Lord had to rebuke him at times. Peter had massive failure at the cross, denying the Lord three times. And the Lord trained him through all this, even taking him back wholeheartedly after that, right? And now Peter was ready. Because through the failures and through the testing of the Lord himself and that training, Peter now had his own convictions. And as we close, I just want to say, I've seen... Uh, some neat conviction in a lot of your own souls that I've never seen before 
over the last couple of years. And it's been awesome to watch uh, how the Spirit is training us up and convicting us personally so that we take a stand and we, we even speak from our own heart on the matter instead of mimicking what our pastor says, right? We develop our own convictions and now we're closer and closer and closer to being ready to be sent out. And we already are, probably just in different degrees, but you know, in the analogy here, the Lord's about to send out the apostles on their own. He's about to take off. And they're ready now. But it took all this wonderful, difficult training and pressing, right? These weren't uncomfortable things, a lot of them. But how else do you come to your own convictions? How else do you have on the board conviction that is a fruit of faith that is a real substance in your own heart and soul that you're ready now to represent him because you have his heart now not your own heart not your own um, agenda in the ministry or with people or whatever in the church there's nothing like your own convictions and without that i don't think we can be true leaders as we spread the gospel regardless of your gift we're all called to the Great Commission. And if that's true, he wants you to be a leader in your own way. But how do you be a leader without your own convictions? And so the Lord's training us. He's patient with us. Even as we give in to temptation at times, he's like, don't listen to that garbage. Don't be condemned. Turn back to me. Look at me. Look at your righteousness in me. And go forward. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to use you for great things, even though you don't get it half the time, just like the apostles. That's okay, because I know your heart. So there we have the grace of God. And we'll close with this, our lesson coming back full circle. In Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is us now. If you're a believer, this is you. And the Spirit, <laughs> He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Think about this. Like He's taken us over, so to speak. It's all by His doing. And through the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, now. Dad, Daddy. It's a totally different relationship, totally different perspective. And now we're able to represent him rightly. Holding on to that perspective on the board. So with that said, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your amazing grace, your love that it's unbreakable, that it's so pure and perfect toward us now that you've adopted us by grace. We thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for your son's righteousness. We thank you for the ability to resist temptation by the power of your spirit. And we thank you for the warnings in your word about Satan's tactics. And please help us not give him any power, but continue to lean on your son each and every day. 
We ask that you bless us all as we go. Help us bring your word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.